chapter 10. You know, if you've been around, we are in Hebrews for the summer. We are getting towards the end. And when I realized that I was teaching this passage and it has one of my favorite lines in the Bible in it, I was very excited. Um, we're going to start right there and dive in and then unpack it a little bit. So Hebrews 10, we're just going to read verse 14 for a moment. This is what it says. For by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Let me say that again. For by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. At this point in Hebrews 10, we have navigated some pretty dense uh, theological passages. I am walking over to get my timer so that tacos do not get cold. This is all a part of my message. Thank you. Pity laughs are totally acceptable, in case you were wondering. All right, let's do that again. Okay, so we've been systematically unpacking um, everything that has to do with the nature and the covenant of Jesus, right? The last nine chapters, Old Testament, Old Covenant, the order of Melchizedek, the kind of priestly order, the body, the blood, the humanity, the divinity of Jesus, and all of which kind of masterly demonstrates this one truth, one single sacrifice, Christ made us perfect forever. All of this work is pointing to this moment. Now, what's exciting about the passage this evening is that it begins a slight shift in the narrative because look at the second half of verse 14, right? It says this, he made perfect forever, what? Those who are being made holy. Those who are being made holy. The word there, and I love it, kind of a direct translation is um, one's being holyized. That is the process of being made holy. It is a holyizing, just to make the word even more complicated, of you and I. You see, the very nature of the work of Christ is not simply theological or intellectual. It's not just this profound idea. And we've spent a lot of time in Hebrews in pretty profound ideas right? Jesus and Melchizedek, that's super cool. God is very clever, okay? But I was thinking this week, you know, the line from, I think it's Merchant of Venice, where he says, even the devil can quote scripture. Um, that line of like, it's not just about knowing the ideas. It's not just about having the right scripture. What we see here is that the very nature of the work of Christ is interlocked with our own transformation, Jesus and what he has done is at work in us. And if we don't see the interlinking between the nature of God and the nature of the work he does in us, we are missing something. Tozer, in um, Experiencing the Presence of God, which is an awesome little book, you should read it, he says, remember, you do not believe a thing rightly until you act in accordance with it. 
What he is saying is not that our actions save us, but he is remarking on the interconnected nature of faith and good works, grace and transformation. They have to go hand in hand. He made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It is an absolute statement about the transformation of God in our lives. And so I want to ask you before we get any further into this, are you being made holy? Am I being made holy? If I pause for a moment and you won't be called out, so let's be honest, I want you to think about your actions. I want you to think about your choices. Look at this past week. Think about the things that you consumed, your spending, your watching, your downtime, your late nights. Think about your in-between. Think, think about yourself and honestly assess, do I see evidence of God's holiness at work in my life? Because there is, friends, an obvious correlation between belief and action. Salvation has been won. Access has been gained. Intimacy with the Father has been granted. We are eternally, absolutely, completely secure in our salvation. And in addition to that, not but, in addition to that, we are called to be being made holy. How does it happen? How does holiness happen? I have had those moments in my life where I thought, God, I've believed a long time. Where is the evidence? And friends, this evening, I want to bring us back to the scripture because right here in Hebrews 10, he is walking us or she is walking us. We don't know the author walking us through a process of how we allow the holiness of God to begin to manifest itself in our lives. So that's what we're committing to. Does that sound good? Good, because I don't have another message, so that's the one you're getting. Um, all right, let's, let's skip down to verse 19, and we're going to pick up from there, right? This is all, remember, Christ made perfect for those who are being made holy. Therefore, verse 19 begins, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy of places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleansing from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I think most of us know that transformation is tricky. Um, if you've ever tried to hold a New Year's resolution, you will discover very quickly that writing it down on a piece of paper and burning it in a campfire does nothing. Um, not th I, that's not something I have ever done, but I have heard it said. Um, I read this week that on average, it takes 66 days to change one specific behavior. It took up to, in this study, 280 days for some people to see an actual kind of habit change, which doesn't sound that long, but then I thought about, you know, 66 days of me waking up every morning and not having a cup of coffee. 
66 days of me getting up every morning at 5 a.m. and going for a run. 66 days of me not watching TV. 66 days of whatever it is. You fill in the blank with that thing that you've thought about maybe giving up, okay? 66 consistent days of investing in a transformative action. This is what's beautiful about the gospel, okay, is that we are eternally perfect under God, which means we don't have the pressure of having to prove anything. We don't have to earn anything. We're not trying to make God proud. That doesn't exist, and that is a beautiful truth. What we do get to do is we get to decide how much of that process of holiness we allow him to do in our lives. How much of that process of sanctification how many of us in the room have a gym membership and never go to the gym, okay? I don't, but I know people. Um, this is the reality, right? Just because you have a gym membership does not mean you will be fit. Now, they don't take away your gym membership if you never show up, but you will not see the results of a gym membership unless you go and do the work. And while this is a very terrible example for sanctification, I think there's truth in it, friends. I think that sometimes we get so accustomed to the idea that we have been made perfect forever that we forget we are being called into holiness. We forget that we can choose whether to to engage with the sanctification of God or not. What's Dallas Willard's famous line, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Flannery O'Connor went so far as to say, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and change is painful. So I think sometimes when it comes to the reality of the transformative power of God, we dig in our heels because we just don't want him to touch that area of our life. And true understanding of the eternal perfection that has been gotten for us by the power of Jesus means that we desire to be transformed, to be like him. We submit ourselves to his process. We pursue holiness. Remember Meryl a few weeks ago speaking about reality at all costs? I think that for some of us, we need to face the reality that we don't actually want the work of God to touch the things in our lives. We, we, we just, I, I felt this conviction this week. There are things in my life I just don't want God to touch. And I felt him breaking me this week as I thought, Lord, I don't want to go, yeah, you can bring holiness in that area and holiness in that area, but not this, not this. My kids don't wake up. I mean, wake up multiple times a night. Do I really have to get up and read my Bible? You know what he says? Yes. Yes, I need you in the word. I need you with me. And that's not in, in shame or in judgment. It is an invitation to holiness. Let's dig in a little bit more. All right, so Cliff Notes version of the last nine chapters is what we're seeing here, okay? He says, therefore, since what? Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, right? We are no longer separate from God. That was a big deal to the author of Hebrews because it's a big deal. Um, we have a new and living way. We are no longer bound by the old covenant. We have a great high priest. He isn't just interceding for us once a year. He is at the right hand of the Father every single day, interceding on our behalf. And since we have assurance, the writer says, of all of these things, therefore, brothers and sisters, what does he say? Let us. 
Let us. Friends, what does it look like to be made holy? It looks like this. Let us what? Draw near. Let us hold unswervingly. And let us spur one another on. Intimacy, tenacity, community. Those are the three words. Intimacy, tenacity, community. Three directives. It's for you. Uh, three directives. I was going to alliterate them and then I thought too far. But... Um, you know, uh, these are three habits of holiness that I think the Hebrew author is giving us and encouraging us towards. If you want to be being made holy, let us, okay? Now notice all of them are communal, which I love, and we're going to get to that in a second. But let's unpack each one as we go. The first one, verse 22, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with full assurance. Seven times in the book of Hebrews, we see this phrase, draw near, draw near. Hebrews 4, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that, me, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Hebrews 7, 25, he is able, for, uh, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Without faith, Hebrews 11, it is impossible to please him for he who draws near to God must believe. And so I could go on. This is one of the great passions for this author, draw near. He or she doesn't want us to settle for a spiritual existence that is distant from God. The Puritans kind of initiated this idea, if you will, um, uh, John Owens in particular, but this idea of communion with God, I think we've lost that a little bit in the modern church. I think we know how to pray and worship and read our Bible, but there is this kind of beautiful, mystical thing of communing with God. Owens wrote, and, and it, it, the letter that I'm referencing, you'll see, was written in 1674, okay? So this is not a current writer. You can imagine him sort of, on all the pictures I saw, like black, stiff collar, white necktie, but this is what he said, Jesus is my best friend. This isn't some sort of like modern mystic, Jesus is my homeboy. This is a, a preacher, a Puritan preacher. Jesus is my best friend, he wrote. And ere long, my only friend, I pray God with all my heart that I might be weary of everything else but conversation and communion with him. That is the thing he wanted more than everything else. I was so convicted by that song tonight. Better is one day. I, God, I, I want, I'm singing that because I want it to be true. I want nothing, I want to be in a place where I want nothing more than to be in a place with God. One commentator I read spoke about Owens, and he said, in the midst of all of his academic and political and ecclesiastical labors, he made visits to God. That was how he used to term them. And he didn't go to ask for anything, to petition. He had a lot of hardship in his life. He said he wouldn't go to be like, God, can you fix this? He went, this is what it says, to see his glorious friend Jesus and to contemplate his greatness. He drew near intimacy. This isn't transactional. This isn't what can God do for me. This isn't a checklist. I'm just going to get my quiet time in the morning. This is deep beautiful, meaningful. I just want to be with my best friend, Jesus. 
I think we can over-religiousize this relationship. And I think God is inviting us to something far more profound. I think we need to learn, relearn how to enjoy him. Thinking of Psalm 16, in his presence there is fullness of joy. Do you know what that feels like? To sit with no agenda and feel the fullness of joy that comes from being in the presence of God. Friends, Christ did not just come, and it is not a just, but you hear what I'm saying, to, to wipe away the sins of the world. No, no, no. He gave his life so that we might once again experience intimate communion with him. One of the scholars I read, and I, I didn't write his name, but he went as far as to say, when we don't draw near, when we don't engage intimacy, intimately with God, we make a mockery of Christ's sacrifice. I don't want to grow so accustomed to the idea that God is always there that I actually neglect him that I neglect this relationship, that I kind of just get like, you know that phrase like, oh, they just let themselves go. They got married and it's now like no date nights, no like moments with their spouse. They just sort of let themselves go. I don't want to do that with Jesus. Just like he's always there. I'm comfortable. I'm situated. I got my sort of religious ticket. Like, no, no, no. We were made to be with him, and when we are with him, holiness starts to happen. Grace starts to transform. The process of sanctification comes through communion with God, not conversations about him. It is not enough to consume spiritual information, and there is lots of it out there. You can listen to all the podcasts, you can read all the books, you can go to all the church services, but friends, if we don't know how to be with him, we are missing it. It is much more than cognitive understanding. I don't want you to walk away on a Sunday and simply go, that was interesting. Oh, that would grieve my heart. I want you to go, wow, God is so good. I need to go and just be with him and process this. One more thing and then we'll kind of, it is easy to partake in the idea of God without ever participating in his divine nature. And I think for many of us, we have lived in a habit of, part, of, of, of partaking in an idea but not participating in the reality it's consumption, it's not communion. Draw near, listen, pray, meditate, enjoy, laugh, confess, muse. And honestly, I kind of, I, I almost wanted to stop there in my notes because I thought, imagine a church that actually looked like this. Can you imagine the radiance of a people who were so in love with Jesus that they genuinely said, yes, take it all, have everything, whatever you want, God, I am so in love with you. I, I want to be that person. I want to know how to enjoy the presence of God. 66 days of us just enjoying him. Can you imagine 66 days of us not watching TV or, or whatever it is in your life that you feel like kind of fills the space. 66 days of just being with Jesus. Whew. 
that challenges me. But can you imagine what we would look like? All right, I could run away. Secondly, what does it say in our habit of holiness, if you will, that Hebrews calls us to? I've used the word tenacity. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Why is it, honestly, that we struggle to believe what we believe? Right? We're here, so there's some sort of like, I, I, I'm engaging with church, but, but let's be honest, right? This phrase, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. It's something we profess. It's something we believe to be true, but the Hebrew writer is telling us to hold on to it because he's speaking to a church of people who didn't really feel like holding on any longer. They were struggling to believe the thing that they believed. If I think about our kind of modern era, Jesus is not the weirdest thing out there. It's not the weirdest religion. It's maybe not the most popular, but it's not the least popular either. There are definitely things that are worse than being a Christian, for the most part. I, I never mind, in our home group this week, we had a very interesting conversation about aliens, and there's, there's weirder beliefs, I promise, okay? <laughs> But I think what happens is this, this belief, right, this uncertainty, the, 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 the struggle we have to hold unswervingly, it generally manifests in two ways, and they're not mutually exclusive. But firstly, it's internally. So we, we struggle with our doubts and our, our wrestles. God, I've got so many questions. I just don't know. I, I, I feel internally unconvinced by this thing I believe to be true. Or, and we see it externally, right? I believe in Jesus, but I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to tell anybody. I'm slightly embarrassed when people find out I'm a Christian. I'm not even sure why. But here's the thing we need to know, okay? Jesus isn't afraid of personal doubt. He's not afraid of questions. He's not worried about that. He doesn't need you to defend him publicly. If he didn't need his disciples to do it when he was on the cross, he doesn't need you to do it now. You are not holding unswervingly for him. Jesus is not, the image in my mind was like a needy boyfriend or girlfriend, you know? How come you didn't introduce me to my friends? How come you haven't told them about me? That's not Jesus. He does not need us to do that. You know who needs it? We need it. We need to profess with our mouths. We need to hold unswervingly. He knows who he is. He knows what he has done. He is perfectly confident and content in the reality of who he is. But friends, we need to learn how to hold unswervingly to the faith that we profess. It's about us. It's about what happens when I stand and I don't let go. And I go, God, you are big enough to process my doubt. You are big enough to process my uncertainty. You are not afraid of the questions I have. You are not afraid of the fact that I really don't want to tell my friend about Jesus, but I feel like you're prompting me to. You are okay with that tension. It's the very nature of faith, guys. I will probably never have all my, ans my questions answered. I will probably never fully understand portions of the Bible that are hard. But it doesn't mean I can't hold on unswervingly. Because, what does it say? He who promised is faithful. He's faithful. And I hold on to that. I was thinking about when I got married to my glorious husband in the back. Eight years in a couple weeks. And um, I... We laugh all the time. We dated for four years. We felt like we kind of knew each other. And then you get married, and then you're like, 
I knew nothing of you before we did this. Like, nothing. Like, we had no idea what we were getting into. And it's kind of the reason why we say vows, right? For better, for worse, in sickness and health, for richer, for poorer, for loving and irritating. We say vows for all of those reasons. And I think it's a great image for us friends. That's what we do with Jesus. We, we hold unswervingly to him. And even when everything goes for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, when life goes my way and when it doesn't, when I wrestle, when I'm unsure, when I feel like he's silent, I hold on to him because I believe that I am covenanted to the king of heaven and he will prove himself faithful. Don't pull away when your doubts arise. Don't go quiet on him. Don't think he can't handle them. He can. He chose, the, 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 the man he chose to lead his church was the man who denied him on the cross. He said, I can use you. If he can use him, he can use you. Let's reclaim the beauty of assurance, of conviction. You can still have doubts and you can hold unswervingly. <clears throat> conviction is a gift. I think it's kind of gotten a bad rap. I think we've seen arrogance and anger and the sort of like dogmatic kind of like Christianity. I think it can look different. I think we can hold on to the tenets of our faith and allow it to make us loving and kind and more generous and more gracious and more merciful. Hold unswervingly because he is faithful. Can I also say, don't just not pull away from Jesus. Don't pull away from community. Let us hold unswervingly. Because sometimes, friends, we want to let go, and we would if it wasn't for the people around us. If it wasn't for that brother or sister standing next to me going, he's in this with you. Hold on. Hold on. Conviction in the hope we profess. I want to see this. All right, thirdly, community. Let's read verse 24 and 25. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. John Wesley famously said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion just doesn't exist. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, Christ works in us in all sorts of ways, but above all else, he works on in us through each other. Finally, Francis Schaeffer, our relationship with one another is the criteria the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christianity, Christian community, he says, is the final apologetic meaning it's the final defense, it's the final proof that we would believe what we believe. If we believe what we believe, this needs to demonstrate it. Too often, it is heartbreaking how often we, we see Christian community as a hindrance towards our spirituality rather than the necessary fuel for it to grow. I think that breaks the heart of God. I think it is one of the robberies of the modern era, this idea that we can exist in a kind of faith outside of spiritual relationship. It's just not in the Bible, and it's just not true. 
that idea of like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. What that really means is I like the idea of spirituality, but I don't want to commit to anything. I don't want to put myself in anything that might hem me in. I just want to sort of like engage as I see fit. Now, the church has failed at times. Guys, I am not blind, but it is nonetheless God's gift to us. And let me say this, since we are the church, we get to determine what community looks like here and now. No pointing fingers. What do you want it to look like? Let's do it. Let's get started creating true, good, beautiful community right here and now. Because if we want to be being made holy, it cannot happen without each other. Look at the text. Look at these kind of three ways in which the author lays out community transforming us. Firstly, he says, in true community, we exist to what? Spur one another on. That word spur literally means irritate. Irritate. I love it. Holiness requires a little bit of irritation, and it's true, right? You know what's the most irritating thing? When my husband is right about me. So irritating. When we're fighting and he says something and I'm like, I know that's true, but I will not admit it. Um, that's irritating, and that's what it looks like here. It's the moment when someone in your life who you love and you trust has the kindness and boldness to say, hey, that's not okay. And boy, do we need it. It's called a blind spot for a reason, friends. We don't see things in our lives. Let's just be real about it. Holiness requires a little uh, irritation. In, uh, oh gosh, what's the Dietrich Bonhoeffer living uh, life and community? Life Together, Life Together. Such a good book. Um, but he writes this, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. He goes on and says, nothing is more compassionate than a severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community, okay, back to the path of sin. This isn't standing out on a street corner pointing at people and condemning them. What does he say? calls another Christian in one's community. This is in friendship. This is in love. This is in trust. But we call them back to a path of life, to a path of holiness. We are not being kind when we allow people to continue on in sin because we don't want to be honest. Because we don't want to say, hey, this is really hard, but I don't think that leads to path of righteousness and goodness and joy. I don't want to be content. I read it this week, um, Rob uh, Dreyer in um, the Benedict Option. He said, the church has been content to be the chaplaincy to a consumeristic, hedonistic culture. We've just gone, oh, we're just going to be kind of the nice guys. But friends, if we truly believe that the way of Jesus leads to life and wholeness and goodness, then we have to call people into that in community, in love, in authenticity. Are you actively and intentionally? It says consider. That means you and I should be thinking about how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. 
Are you praying for the people in your life, in your home group? Are you intentionally inviting people to do that for you? Someone in your life should have access to that. Someone in your life should know what is knowable and be living in intimate community with. That is what we are being called to. Second practice for healthy community. What does it say? True community requires commitment. Do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Friends, I know showing up can be hard. But the passage is pretty clear. Do not give up meeting together. And I'm not just talking about a Sunday service. This is valuable and awesome. When you get to stand with 100 people in the room and worship Jesus, it's amazing. But it's so much more than that. It's engaging in in, in deep, meaningful community, home groups, praying together, worshiping together, serving together, showing up to serve this community is probably one of the best ways we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It doesn't get better than that, walking in the path of Jesus when it comes to the poor and the needy. Because being together is fundamental to our process of sanctification. You can't spur one another on if you don't show up. If you don't invest, if you don't give yourself, if you don't offer who you are and what you have to give, holiness happens in community. Let us cannot happen if there is no us. If there is no community, there is no spurring one another on. And I think, friends, we need to shake off our apathy, our passivity, and learn what it means, again, to live in Christian community. And it is going to be uncomfortable at times. It doesn't make it bad. We have been raised in an individualistic culture. We have been fed it breakfast, lunch, and dinner, most of us our whole lives. And so the very foundation of of what we believe and and who we are is centered around this kind of postmodern, secular, hedonistic, personal, religious sort of space. And I think we need to re-journey back. We need to rediscover in this time, in this generation, what it means to be the people of God. I think we've lost it. And I think he is calling us back to himself, calling us back to honesty, calling us back to authenticity, calling us back to transparency. All right, lastly, true community is full of encouragement. That's where it ends. But encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Encouragement is probably one of the most underrated contributions. We see all the fancy things, but prophecy by its very nature begins in encouragement. It's edifying each other. Encouragement, we know, fosters life and change. All the studies say that positive reinforcement works better. So if you want to encourage holiness in your buddy, I mean, yeah, encourage holiness in your body. Encourage them in holiness. Does that make sense? We need to speak words of life. We need to speak words of truth. We need to be people who are not tight about those things. We are being called to both irritate each other and encourage each other. And if they are done hand in hand, it is a beautiful recipe for transformation, for holiness. Here's the reality, friends, and I'm, I'm wrapping up. Here's the reality about the church. You know why hypocrisy slips in? Because we don't do this. There's no transparency. There's no honesty. that's, That's how it happens. What you say is not how you live. And I think for some of us, we need to recognize the hypocrisy in our own lives. 
I'm not acting in accordance with what I say I believe. You know why people become judgmental? It's because we, we lose humi humility. We actually lose sight of our own sin. We don't allow some people to, to address our blind spots. So we begin to think that our sin isn't as bad as that person's. And judgmental attitudes seep in. And I think the spirit grieves. No, no. How do we change the narrative about Christian community? How do we reframe what is said about us? It starts with a lot of transparency, a lot of humility, a lot of showing up, a lot of being present, a lot of committing ourselves to sometimes uncomfortable conversations. But at the end of the day, we are, we are committing ourselves to people and to the process of being made holy. I want this to be a reflection of Genesis. I want to be a people who know how to show up for one another. I want to be a people who are not afraid of the hard conversations. I want to know that even if I offend you today, you're going to be back tomorrow because there's relationship, there's intimacy. We're going to get tired. We're going to be offended. Sometimes it's going to hurt. But this calls us back to each other. Let us. Let us edify, encourage, irritate, build up, love, call out the good, encourage deeds of, of, of righteousness and holiness. I want to see that community. I want to be a part of that community. I want to build this here and now. And friends, I think the Spirit of God is saying, yes, we can. I think too long has the devil dictated the narrative about the church that can stop here and now. So then... Brothers and sisters, let us, let us. Can we stand and pray together? If you want this to be true, and I'm not forcing it on you, my eyes are closed, I, I'm going to stand with, with hands open. It's just a posture of going, yeah, I, I want this. I want to recreate what you created in the garden. Intimacy with God. Intimacy with one another. No shame. No guilt. Honesty, transparency as you intended from Genesis 1. I ask even now, God, that you would cleanse our minds where we have been judgmental, where we have been hypocritical, where we have seen the sins of others and not be willing to address the sins in our own lives, where we have silenced your voice because we don't want you to touch things, where we have neglected the path of holiness, Lord, we, we repent here and now. But even as we do, our eyes are fixed on you and our faces are radiant because the truth of God is seeping in, the truth that leads to life and joy the truth that leads to transformation. Lord, I want to be a part of a community that is so committed to that. We want to be being made holy.